0: Hey listeners, it's Marty. We just wanted to give you a quick heads up as to some content warning in this episode. We will be discussing heavy topics such as sexual abuse and assault. If you have small children near you, please be advised. However, if this conversation brings up past memories or feelings, please seek out help. To any survivors of sexual abuse and assault, please know that we stand with and for you. This episode is for you to help shine light in an area of darkness and bring voice to those who have been silenced.
1: All of us are on a complicated journey of faith, pursuing truth and deeper knowledge of God, but how do we know we're doing it right? Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing, and it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and one of my best friends, Marty Frederick, and I have agreed to join each other in creating exactly that kind of space, where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to look honestly at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today and to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world In our expanding universe and in our pluralistic society we believe that doubt is not the enemy of faith but perhaps one of its greatest allies we think that the christian life is more about asking the right questions than it is about finding the answers and we believe we are being called to continually ask those questions renewing our minds and rethinking our faith in the process thank you for joining us on that journey All right, well, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. Again, we are formerly Theology Doesn't Suck. If you're interested in why we changed our name, uh, you can go back into the archives and find a few episodes ago uh, where we break that down. But from now on, we are the Rethinking Faith podcast. And as always, I'm one of your hosts, Josh Patterson, and with me today is Marty Frederick. Marty, what's going on, man?
0: Hey, Josh, I'm actually not doing too good today, because yesterday we received the news about Kobe Bryant, and that was really sad. Mm. Um, you know, just what happened with he and his daughter, and then the other family, the the other coach from Orange County College, the basketball coach there, and his, some, his, his daughter and his wife were in the helicopter too, and that was just sad. It impacted the sports world, and so you and I always like to banter about sports to start the podcast, and so that, you know, that was sad, but... On a different note, we also we had the NHL All Star Weekend, and uh, you know Patrick Kane scored two goals, although they still didn't win. Um, but he did that really cool thing, like where he shot the puck over like a super long like way and scored points and won <laughs> that competition. So that was, that was kind of cool. But,
1: nice man. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I didn't get to see too much of the All Star stuff. I I was helping Noelle out with an uh, an event this weekend for her work. Uh, so as you know, she works at uh, an animal rescue, like in here in Maryland, um, called Barks. And hopefully, I'm allowed to say this, and my ordination doesn't get revoked for this. But the event was a fundraiser, and it was a dog wedding, and and so like mm. there were like two dogs that were actually from Barks, and like they had been adopted out, <laughs> they had received medical treatment there, and they were best friends. Um, and so it was it was really just more for a show, but it was like a legit wedding, like catering and like everything. It was wow. really nice really nice in a really upscale hotel in Baltimore. And um I officiated in air quotes for those who can't see the dog wedding. Um <laughs> which is just absolutely insane. And hopefully that's not heretical or something like that. But it was mostly it was just a fun thing, it was a fundraiser. Um so I was not able to to be a part of All Star Weekend. Um, however, I do know that, uh, we're not going to be talking about dog weddings today. And in fact, we have a guest here with us, uh, who probably now thinks that we're crazy and wants to end the interview, (laughs) dog weddings cross the line. Uh, so with us today is Ruth Everhart, pastor Ruth Everhart. So Ruth, how are you today?
2: I'm doing fine. Thanks.
1: Good. So in, in your professional opinion, is a dog wedding worth having ordination revoked over? <laughs>
2: <laughs> that, that would be a pretty, uh, that, would, that would be an extreme response to uh, something that's kind of silly. Absolutely.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Great. Well, um, so before we jump in and, and have you tell us a little bit about yourself, we do have a question uh, that we ask all of our guests. Um and it's a question that's very near and dear to to Marty and I. And so if you're ready for this, uh Marty's gonna throw a question your way.
0: <laughs> Ruth, who is your favorite hockey team? My
2: favorite <laughs> hockey team? Yes. Well that would have to be the Washington Capitals Hooray! <laughs>
0: All right. <laughs> I figured that would be your answer. But that's
2: yeah. a that's a very good answer.
0: It's
1: the yeah. best answer.
0: Josh, we need to get some Chicago theologians on the show some, at some point. I think I think when you do some of these reaching out to different authors and different guests, you pick people that aren't from Chicago on purpose. Just I so that their Completely. answer is never the Blackhawks.
1: Yeah, it has nothing to do with their amazing My, my brother is a Blackhawks fan,
2: if that, if okay. that makes you feel better. That does help.
1: Yes, yeah, that does help. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, great. Well, uh, Ruth, thank you so much um, for being with us today, and thank you for entertaining our – our silly question there, Um, just before we start, uh, for for listeners who aren't familiar with you or or with your work, can you just share a little bit um, about who you are, what you do, maybe like your your faith background, things like that?
2: So I'm a Presbyterian pastor. I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian church, I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, and uh, so I attended the very hub and heart of their world, which was Calvin College. And while I was at Calvin, I um, had this traumatic experience in my last year, which kind of changed my life, a traumatic sexual assault. I went on from there to end up, uh, you know, marrying and becoming a mother and a pastor, uh, going to seminary. And um, after I'd been in ministry for a couple of decades, I felt called to really re-examine some real basic things about my life. And so I looked at what that sexual assault had meant to my life. And that's how I came to write my memoir, which is called Ruined. And that was my second book. I'd also written a book about pilgrimage to the Holy Land uh, first, which is called Chasing the Divine in the Holy Land.
1: Okay.
2: And then I wrote Ruined. And after that, I did a lot of writing and speaking about sexual assault and the response of the church And that's really what led to the book that we're gonna talk about today, which is called The Me Too Reckoning, Facing the Church's Complicity in Sexual Abuse and Misconduct. Because what happened is after I wrote Ruined, I got so much feedback from people with similar stories that I really saw that I wanted to widen my lens from just my own personal story to other people's stories and I wanted to really overtly use scripture to reflect on those. And that's how this book uh, came into being.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, first off, thank you so much, um, for writing your book and for, uh, you know, starting this conversation. I think, um, as you, you point out in your book, this is a conversation that oftentimes the church, uh, is either, you know, afraid to have, uh, for various reasons or kind of pushes off or, or ignores, um, but obviously, <laughs> by having you here, Marty and I both think it's an extremely important conversation uh, to have, yeah. and one that needs to be, uh, you know, to use like biblical imagery to be, you know, brought into the light um, for us to discuss. So, I guess um, for people who may not know, because your, your book is, is titled The Me Too Reckoning, uh, and for people who aren't familiar with that language, can you explain to us
2: what is, uh, what is Me Too? So, MeToo was a hashtag that uh, began really back in 2006. A civil rights activist named Tarana Burke uh, started it as a way for women to kind of echo the fact that they also were victims of sexual assault. And uh, there was so a a movement about that, but it didn't really gain huge steam until Harvey Weinstein's allegations hit the media, which really was in 2017, in the fall, in October, to put a date on it. And um, I still remember that weekend uh, because I was speaking about sexual abuse and the kind of wildfire that that lit uh, gave real urgency to the work I was doing. And I thought, wow, maybe the world is ready to sit up and take notice of the sexual assault of women, which in a way is not just old news, but ancient news, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also current news. And so, um, yeah, from its beginning, I think the hashtag has been in a way a prophetic call to say... Uh, let's lift up a lament together. That's how I see it being prophetic. Um, The Mm -hmm. role of the prophet to say, this is something our society needs to lament. And we need to do that together, individually and together. And it's, of course, a way to just um, find each other. Uh, So a true use of what social media can do, which is to create a groundswell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and
1: I think too, unfortunately, and I mean, you touch on this on your book, but, It seems like, um, and I mean, there's various reasons for this, but it seems like oftentimes when uh, the Me Too uh, hashtag, uh, people see that, there tends to be some uh, negative response to the Me Too hashtag as if it's (coughs) some like crazy, like liberal idea or something like that. Um, Can you just speak to that a little bit, like why that might be um, and and perhaps why that's um, a false characterization?
2: I was kind of hoping you could elucidate that for me, <laughs> Maybe you uh, run into that in ways. I do run into that. And um, I think that my journey has taken me so far from a very conservative place to a much wider or more open place that I honestly forget mm-hmm. how narrow the worldview can be where a, uh, a hashtag that, that that brings together women who've been victimized is somehow a liberal agenda. Um And yet, at the same time, I am seeing that um, this is a political issue, and and that's because sexual assault is the abuse of power. Mm You've heard that phrase a lot last week, right? This is what the impeachment is all about. And this word, this phrase, abuse of power, becomes political and partisan, which I think is a travesty, uh, because... To respond to the abuse of women, it would be, you know, you would think that would be a no-brainer. And for people of faith who followed Jesus, who was a champion of women, it would seem to be uh, something that all Christians of good faith could agree upon. And yet I do see that it quickly devolves. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have some wisdom for me.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So I think, I know one thing um, that I tend to see, and it's, it's been really interesting for me uh, because I have not uh, grown up in a tradition uh, that favored um, patriarchy uh, I have always grown up with women pastors in my lot in my life um, I've worked with and for uh, women pastors and so it it had never been something um, that I ever questioned and so recently I was having a conversation uh, with um two, uh, people that I work with, uh, on pastoral staff at my church. And I made a comment that came off and I looked pretty stupid for saying it, (laughs) but basically I was saying like, yeah, I mean, this had to do back when, um, the whole Beth Moore thing came out and John MacArthur was saying outlandish things. Um, and I was like, I don't really understand, like, why can't we just move past this? Like I thought the whole women in ministry thing was like something we were, you know, done and settled with. And they're like, "Wow, that like that's a pretty privileged thing to say."
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I and I apologized, and I was like, "You're absolutely right. I just haven't known any differently." And so I think there's within the church um, a strong uh, pull still towards uh, patriarchy, and I think perhaps for reasons of power, um, mm-hmm. where. Uh, Men have have typically dominated uh, within the realm of theology, biblical studies, uh, as pastors, as leaders, all those kind of things. And once you start to question someone's power, um, people get real antsy and scared, uh, is at least what I've seen in my experience. I don't know if you have anything to to add to that, Marty.
0: Well, yeah. See, my experience has been the opposite. Um, I didn't really have much faith experience. uh, Much faith was not a part of my story until I was in high school. Uh, the church I wound up going to first really wound up it really honestly was sort of your your what I would call like a your classic Midwestern Christianity where um it's all led by men and there's a great men's group and there's a great, you know, sort of men's Bible study that we meets every week and they're super strong, you know, re- religious and really focused on the word and really want to dig deeper into the word. Uh, there's not much for women, but there, it, there was a group called moms, which was a during the week group that mothers when their children were in school could get together in fellowship. And it was, you know, I always thought like, well, that's silly. Like, why can't they just get together like anybody else? Like, <laughs> like have a, for me, it always kind of stuck out as strange. Um, and it wasn't honestly until I went to seminary at Gordon Conwell, Um, I had uh, I had two professors, um, one of which was uh, Dr. Gwen Fair Adams, who was she did Christian history, uh, but she also did a lot in the discipleship area. Um, And then after her, it was one female professor after the other that just really impacted me really deeply. And I remember thinking to myself, what? sort of like you said Josh like what why is this an issue and 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 I get that I understand from the from the non-privileged side that it's it's an issue because of power and men have superseded themselves into places of authority um and I think for a long time I think women just kind of kind of towed the line if they needed to but but otherwise just stayed in the shadows because that was easier Mm -hmm. um but i think i think as time has gone on i think there have been really strong women that have stood up and said this is not right um and i think where things have really begun to take to take steam is men have stood up with them and said this is not right Mm um and i to be honest i it's to me it's sad I think you mentioned this a little bit in your book, Ruth, at the beginning. It's sad that this started in the secular world before the church, because it <laughs> yes, should not have been that way. It should have been the church <clears throat> leading with this and saying, this is not OK. But I. In Paul's words uh, Paul's words are more important than anything else. And Paul said that women need to be quiet. So we're going to take that one passage and we're going to say, that's it. That's, that's what women need to do. Uh, and anyone that thinks differently, man, you just, you just don't really believe in the authority of scripture or something like that. Yes. Um, and, uh, so I, I think, I think that's honestly, you know, I was just, as I was reading this book this past weekend, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I, I'm not really sure when this started and for some reason you don't put this story together that this is even a biblical issue, like that this happened in biblical times. This happened not only in Jesus time, but before that and that this was a constant theme throughout literally all of history. It's been this way. It's not just a modern issue. It isn't just, you know, since women's suffrage in the early 1900s that, you know, Oh, well that was the first time this started, but really if you think back to your history class, that's probably the first time you really truly learned about it. I mean, mm. honestly. And um and to me, that's just a real shame. So yeah, I I think I think it's a power thing, but you know, I I am I would say this, I would say that I'm I'm proud of um books like this within the faith community. And I'm um I I think uh it would be great to see um more books like this that stand. <laughs> up for for women and for egalitarianism um i don't think it needs to just be the pc usa that allows or the <laughs> methodist church that allowed that allows women to be pastors and elders i i think mm-hmm. it should be across the board absolutely so
2: well hearing the kind of the divergence in your experiences within faith communities is interesting and i think it uh Race is kind of the diversity in our society. And yet, what the theme that runs through it is that it's what we're accustomed to is men having power, and that that's just been the way it's been throughout human history. I mean, yeah, we're not talking something that's a recent phenomenon. I think you have to look at millennia of experience here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what the church does then is put the imprimatur of God's word, as mm-hmm. you said, yep. really, really the words of Paul and a very few. Uh, and put that on um, on top of of what uh, the world's patriarchy. So then you have literally biblical patriarchy, and so it's really a double whammy for women who um, are people of faith. And that's maddening to me because it's so against what I understand to be the teaching of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what uh, people you would think we would be champions of women. We'd be working for full equality and not layering another level of abuse on top of a woman. Right. So that there becomes this God talk about how, when she is abused, how she should submit or she should forgive her abuser and, um, and these kinds of things. So that I think the church deserves its, uh, its place in society's eyes as being, Pretty lousy at responding to sexual abuse. Our track record is not good, which is why I wrote this book.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. I actually, Ruth, I worked for an RCA church as my first uh, full time ministry experience, Um, and there was a, it was a small town. There was an RCA church and there was a CRC church, and families that went to either hated hated the other families. (laughs) Um, the youth groups tried to do events together, and some families wouldn't allow their children to participate if the two churches were doing an event together. Uh, but the but I remember always feeling like that was always like crazy and silly. I mean that there was a it was over a hundred year history that those two churches had of butting heads. Um, this was in Washington State. But what was what also stuck right. out to me about that church, um, and both of those churches was the the lack of women leadership. But at the same time, Similar denominations like the PCUSA and things that were happening in Michigan with like Kevin DeYoung leaving the RCA and going to PCUSA were over a lot of these issues and saying, well, listen, the guys, like some of this stuff is old news. Like we need to kind of we need to kind of rise up above these things. And so even though this church was trying to find ways to be socially liberal and what they were thinking about and rethink a lot of these different issues, some of these things from 100 years, 100 years ago were still affecting families and great great grandchildren down the road <laughs> were being un, like disallowed to enjoy each other. So when you mentioned CRC, I thought of that. But I mean it was there was just a, yet another experience of mine in ministry where women were not allowed and it was vocal. You know, this was taught and what he was even what even struck me further was convinced that was the biblical response.
1: Yeah, I think One thing that that was really interesting and and was very helpful, uh, Ruth, when reading your book was how you pointed out how um, when people are uh, victims of uh, sexual assault, sexual violence, and then the church adds another layer of abuse on top of it by using scripture, um, almost not to justify the assault, but I guess sometimes, yeah, to justify things or to to silence people, uh, to keep things, uh, you know, secret um, or something like that. Um, and it's really crazy to me that this, this book, this thing that's supposed to be life giving and this story of, of, uh, God and, and, and in the person of Jesus siding with those who are oppressed and who have been silenced is then used to do more oppressing and silencing. Um, and it's, it's a real shame. And I think, uh, you had mentioned uh, Jesus and, and Jesus um, being an advocate for women. Um, and one of the stories that uh, you talked about, and I, um, I think it would be helpful if if you could share a little bit with our listeners as well, was uh, Jesus, um, his interaction with the woman that uh, had the bleeding um, issues. So you could, could you share that a little bit about
2: that with us? Uh, so the story from Mark 5 where mm-hmm. Jesus encounters a woman uh, because she insists on the encounter. Um, she knows that she shouldn't be in this place of out in public because she has a condition which, according to the Levitical laws of that day, would prohibit her from being um, in public and certainly from touching other people, certainly from touching men that she doesn't know. Uh, she has this um, dysmenorrhea or, you know, she has a period that won't stop. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And uh, she's desperate, so she kind of worms her way through the crowd and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. That's kind of a familiar phrase for a lot of people. And she immediately feels the power of healing go through her body and knows that she's healed. And then Jesus doesn't just let it go there. Hmm. You know, I, I just, I just when you really look sometimes at what the way Jesus interacts with human beings in general and women in particular is kind of astounding. I mean, he says, who touched me? As if he doesn't know. The disciples <laughs> say, well, what do you mean? You know, they're And I just picture these guys doing this crowd control. And, you know, Jesus is, I I call it in the book that he's, he's like always at this, like the center of an amoeba, you know, Mm -hmm. like he's Mm -hmm. the nucleus and this crowd is always shifting around him. And I see him in this story very much. He's at the center and these crowds just kind of pulsating around him. And they're like, Jesus, what do you mean? Who touched you? You know, you're being mobbed. And he says, no, no, somebody touched me. And the woman doesn't just duck out, you know, she doesn't just disappear, which she could have done. She's she cops to it, you know, even though she's done this illegal thing. And and then they have this interchange. And I just find that story so healing and so inspiring. And you know, when I don't find the faith community healing, I am really glad that I find the words and actions of Jesus healing. And That's why I really feel a passion to lift them up for people, because we tend to just ignore this, like, yeah, Jesus healed people, and sometimes he even healed women, (laughs) but to sometimes to really look at a story like that and try to unpack kind of the layers of it and... And, and there's another story that's kind of sandwiches it of this other daughter who's 12 years old, the daughter of Jairus. Mm-hmm. Look at those two stories kind of in tandem is these two daughters who are healed because at the end of the healing of the bleeding woman, Jesus says, um, he calls her daughter. I mean, he claims her as his daughter. I mean, she's obviously a woman much older than himself or will likely. And, uh, so it's just it's just a powerful passage. And I love preaching on it when I am talking about this issue because it's just a word that we need to hear powerfully more frequently than we do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. I think too, another um, story
1: that you pointed out and highlighted um, that I thought was extremely helpful and important, especially to highlight um, the ideas of patriarchy and abuse of power. Um, And things like that was the story of of David and Bathsheba, um, which I remember growing up in Sunday school, you know, being taught that like, oh, you know, David and Bathsheba, David's like outside on the roof trying to, you know, do his thing. And then he looks, oh, and look, there's Bathsheba and she's so beautiful and he just is mesmerized and like can't control himself and blah, blah, blah. So um, can we we talk about the the David and, and Bathsheba a little bit as well? I think that was super helpful.
2: I'm glad you found it that way. And I actually take two chapters to kind of unpack Mm -hmm. her story because I, the first chapter I deal with the David and Bathsheba story. And the second chapter, I kind of deal with Nathan coming in and the light that he sheds on it as a prophet. And I think both are important and um, I'm glad you related to it kind of from Sunday school. That's why I opened the (laughs) flannel graph. Yeah. The flannel graph was great. Yeah. I didn't know how weird it was that, if other people would relate to having originally learned that story as, as a flannel graph, because I, you know, I, well, I'm showing my age here, but I loved those things, you know, the little, <laughs> the little sheep getting moved around on the board and stuff. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, I learned it much the same way you did that. Basically, best Sheep is seduced yeah david exactly. and of course it's the most understandable thing in a world in the world that he would be and she, i like that she used the word mesmerized and you know beauty is mesmerizing and so we kind of understand that And we say well you know he was just a good red-blooded american man right this boy <laughs> and um and when you flip it around and really start pulling that uh text apart you know um sentence by sentence or word by word and to see the dynamics of power da- David is not only the king he is he is the most revered King that's ever ever ruled in Israel I mean when when they say that Jesus came from the Davidic line I mean that's a pretty powerful testimony as to how important David David's rule was, so mm-hmm. he's not just the king in title. He he has a mythical ethos around him that he is he is the man. He is the greatest man who's ever lived. We know his whole story, from his little um, uh, slingshot and how he killed Goliath and how he became, um, uh, he, he, how he danced before the Ark of the Covenant and how he subdued his tens of thousands so yeah now you take a man with that kind of a rep you know that kind of street cred and that kind of power and you have a a woman any woman you know is the issue of consent even real I mean I mean does it even exist can a woman who is um, of so much less power Can not she say yes or no in any meaningful way if the king desires her? So that's, you know, a question to raise is that issue of consent and the issue of um, respect and the issue of Bathsheba's voice. And now she's also interesting because she does, Scripture does give her a voice. I mean, at least it names her. I mean, you know, it's the biblical record is so, so paltry around women that if you get a name, you have to at least say, well, gosh, we mm-hmm. at least get her name. Yeah. You know, she's not just the wife of Uriah, although Nathan makes a big point of calling her the wife of Uriah because this is a huge part of the, of the dynamic. So, yeah, there's a lot in the Bathsheba story, and I do think it's especially helpful because it's one that's been used so often in the more conservative churches, um, as kind of a touchstone. And it's so good to kind of, uh, play with it and, and and examine it from some different angles and different points of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a writer. I understand that this key thing in any passage is point of view. And we don't use that enough in scripture. That's, it's so important. Um, Because when we read scripture, we always put ourselves in the point of view of the person in power. And if that's Jesus, we put ourselves in his shoes. And we do this unconsciously. And that perverts our understanding of every story in scripture. And so I just really like to pull that up into consciousness when I work with scripture.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, so like with the the David and Bathsheba thing, um, and I know this... uh, tends to raise um, hackles for some people, but I think because of what you pointed out with, with the power dynamic uh, between David and, and Bathsheba, and um, but then also some of the language like David sent his men to take her um, and things like this, I think an appropriate word to use uh, for this situation would be that David raped Bathsheba. Um, but often that raises all sorts of problems and people freak out when you say that. Um, but I don't know how else to read it. <laughs> like yeah. I can't, I can't unsee, uh, unsee that. And then I think too, like even, um, hopefully this isn't uh, a poor, uh, import taste or anything to like draw this parallel. But it seems almost uh, like people then take that idea that they're taught about David and Bathsheba, and then we see it play out. Like if you want a kind of modern day example, the whole thing with Monica Lewinsky um, and President Clinton, where. It was. It's the same thing, almost, right? Like pr- the, he's the president. He's the, our, like people say, oh, he's the most powerful man in the world. Blah blah blah. And so, I think taking that idea and not seeing the power dynamic at play still surfaces in today's society is kind of what I'm trying to point out mm-hmm. and and get at that people um, don't recognize that for for whatever reason.
0: Josh, Just uh, along those lines, I I think what's important about that parallel is that, you know, even when it was brought to light, Bill Clinton lied about that. Right. And then only after it went through the entire impeachment process and he was found that it was indeed true, did he then admit to it. And it was really just because it was I'm the most powerful man in the world and I don't have to admit to this if I don't want to. And I think, you know, at the at the at the uh, expense of being shrewd about it, I mean the David and Bathsheba thing really does boil down to: I'm the most powerful man in the world, and I can do whatever I want to. And tragically, that's not even the first biblical example of someone <laughs> utilizing power to to bring force or hurt or or just whatever, you know. I, on somebody else, it's not the first example, um, and and I think that's the tragic part of that is that I mean, for me, growing up, the David and Bathsheba story was, you know, sort of like you guys are both talking about how it was just, you know, how Bathsheba was there, and of course, I mean, you know, you can understand why David would feel the way he did you know with the with the story of the woman who touches Jesus cloak earlier the only thing that i was ever taught about that growing up as a as a believer at first was that this woman had faith and so she believed she could be healed And so that was a really easy way to steer the conversation away from the fact that this was a woman and that Jesus took the opportunity to see who it was and point out and make it make it a thing. He didn't have to make it a thing like he didn't have to do with everybody else that was bumping into him. But they said, well, see, he made it a thing because her faith was strong. And so if you believe that and that was where they would go with it and kind of forget to mention that it was about woman. Uh, that it was about her. That that there was something specific that, about her having faith. It wasn't just that she had faith. Um, so yeah. But the the, ba- the David and Bathsheba thing. I mean, to me, it really boils down to he had the power to do what he wanted to do, and uh, he really knew that Bathsheba couldn't stop him right. uh, from from doing that. And uh, he really knew that Uriah would be upset, but Uriah really couldn't stop him either. <laughs> Um, if he really, if if Uriah tried to stop him, that wouldn't have that wouldn't have worked. Um, but David was afraid of that anyway because he waited until Uriah left <laughs> to it, to go about doing all this stuff and sent him off to war. And so I mean it was pre calculated and all of that. But you know, yeah. I'm not the expert.
2: <laughs> well, context always matters, yeah. and um, that's what you're raising. And the other thing that I would just comment on about this conversation is that. We act sometimes like power dynamics are so complicated or nuanced. And yeah. as you've just mentioned, basically people do what they can do. And why do they do it? Because they can and because they want to. And so it's, it's sometimes we, I get frustrated that we act like it's so complicated. No, powerful people do bad things because they can and they want to and they get away with it. And um, and I appreciate the comparison to uh, the Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal. Of course, I would just remind us all that he's not the only uh, powerful predator who's mm. been in the presidency. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, that uh, you could pull out similar stories about uh, Donald Trump. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I think I really
1: like, too, if if um, you would go on, you you mentioned it briefly, but Nathan um kind of you know comes along and and does a really great job of calling david uh on his bs and then um i also like how you highlighted uh david's response though um you brought it you brought it full circle and there's some redemption in there so i i I appreciated that
0: yeah
2: yes thank you i because i think I had such a kind of a journey with David while I was writing this book because I just got so angry at him for raping Bathsheba, of course. But then I also had to kind of come to grips with the fact that I think what did make him a great man was that he actually came to see the error of his ways. Um, When after Nathan accuses him by telling him this story about this lamb, it's like, David cops to it, and that is pretty unusual. Yeah. You know, as you mentioned, uh, Bill Clinton never did, and uh, I feel, uh, you know, until he, you know, the screw was put to the wall. I think so. I, I think that what makes David perhaps actually the remarkable man we think him to be is that he did own his mistake, mm-hmm. and um. I think there is some redemption in that, and, and and there's so much to learn there too. Then about who are the Nathans in our culture? I mean, we don't generally have prophets anymore, so who can act like that third party outsider to call someone to accountability um, when a person, a powerful person, abuses their power? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and I think that kind of thing does happen today. There are, I mean, I think you know, I think back to the 2016 election, and I think that there were a lot of There were a lot of Nathans per se um, that were attempting to bring to light things that had happened within Donald Trump, things that people were trying to accuse Hillary Clinton of, you know, not necessarily sexual abuse with Hillary Clinton as much as it was obviously with Donald Trump was such a big deal. Um, But but, you know, the thing was, is that it seemed to me and it seems to me like it's this way, unfortunately, at least right now, that power tends to win out. These days, over those types of things, and I think I think back to some of the Supreme Court justice nominee with with Kavanaugh and those women that were coming forward, and power just won out, and power just kind of shoved its way in like a bulldozer, and uh, it's you know I remember sitting at Josh and I were working on staff at a church together with when the Kavanaugh uh, nomination was going on. And uh, there was a big meeting of all staff that had to get together and kind of sit in one office. And our lead power, our founding pastor, kind of put everyone in the same room. And, you know, there was this, this voice of unity and solidarity that, you know, no, no acts of sexual abuse will ever go as acceptable. This will never be something that, you know, if you're basically he was saying, you know, if this happens, you will be gone immediately. There won't be. Any, you know, let's 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 see if the person telling us this is the truth is telling the truth or not, or whatever. There wasn't anything like that. Um, but I will say that much of that did not feel genuine to me. Um it seemed like, oh well, now that this this other thing is happening with with Epstein and with Weinstein and now, you know, with Kavanaugh and with Donald Trump, I guess we'd better say something. But it was to me, it was less genuine than it was a reaction to we better cover our bases on this. Um, and although there's merit in covering the base, because I think it still does say something about it, I, I think it, it, it also speaks to the fact that, you know, Josh and I worked at a church with some powerful men who were in power, who definitely, as Josh and I have learned over the years, are not willing to 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 get rid of any of that power or lose that power. And to me, even looking back now with the hindsight I have, it it seems even more disingenuous now. So.
1: Yeah, and Marty, just to comment on that, because I think this is going to help make a point to the dis disingenuous part. Um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, if I have false memory or something like that. But these we started having these conversations, and then as soon as Bill Hybel's name got thrown into the mix, everything kind of slowed down, and we were like, oh, well, wait a minute, like – Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Like we have to get the benefit of the doubt, blah, 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 blah. Which I think Ruth brings that point exactly throughout her book. And I think perhaps the most frustrating thing – like honestly, Ruth, when I was reading your book, it was a page-turner. I loved every minute of it but then also feelings of of anger and frustration and um, it was like really – it was an emotional read. There were often times when I just had to put your book down and walk away because – Like Mm -hmm. I wanted to go punch someone in the (laughs) throat and I have a a very strong ethic of nonviolence. But I think what we're seeing and and with this power stuff that you're you're pointing out, Marty, and that Ruth, you're pointing out, is that the same kind of things that we see power for men, you know, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, evangelicals willing to give him a pass on these sexual um, accusations, all this kind of stuff. Uh, because of they want power and then we see this too i mean threaded throughout your book is filled with stories of of churches and systems um just covering up and and being quiet about or not acting on properly uh sexual abuse and scandal in the church and it seems like again and again it keeps coming back to this idea of power and protecting face and um i don't know it just oh. it's frustrating to me <laughs>
2: Well, good. I'm I'm glad you got the kind of the takeaways, you know, I'm glad that it accessed your emotions because emotions are an important part of the faith journey and they're important, they're important, um, content, you know, important information and, uh, too often they get relegated to the second class place. And I think if you can walk in the shoes of someone who is powerless, you have all, very valuable lens on scripture. And it sounds mm-hmm. like the book helped you do that. Oh,
1: yeah. very, very much so. And, um, oh goodness, I just lost my
2: train of thought. <laughs> Forgive me. Well, you know, what, what, how should a Christian feel about power? I mean, why is it that, that our leaders, uh, are allowed to be power mongers? I mean, I'm a Presbyterian. And the reason I'm a Presbyterian is because I love the way our structure is set up to make sure that no one individual can have too much power right now that said you know it's 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 about as successful at that as um america is at being a democracy <laughs> in other words you know it's still in, in the experimental phase and the theory yeah. is better than the reality having said that it at least it tries because it has this understanding that when you invest too much power in an individual you set them up to abuse their power yeah. mm-hmm. You know, and you look at the first hymn of the Christian church, Philippians 2, right? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not equate equality with God as something to be grasped. hmm And I just feel like, why don't we talk differently about power and the abuse of power since we're Christians? And we understand that to be powerless is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I mean that that we're supposed to we're supposed to divest ourselves of power. We're supposed to side with the people who who are the um, you know, the triumvirate of the powerless, the uh, the the aliens, the widows, and um, the orphans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, over yeah. and over throughout Scripture, those three are lifted up as as the ones that we're supposed to have special care for. Uh, But in reality, you know, we might have our missions programs or whatever, but, you know, the real focus is on that heart of power and and how do we shape that and how do we wield that power and how do we try to. And right now, the alignment, the unholy alignment of the evangelicals with um, the Trump agenda, I'll just say I, I have huge concern. And, you know, was it was it Friday that the March for Life happened? Mm hmm folks folks let's wake up let let us look at what's happening here this is this is a tidal shift this is a moment that we should pay attention to because this is the alignment of politics and and supposedly religious feeling uh, you know around abortion which becomes just a litmus test um, as if a thinking person doesn't have any more thought than being at one of two polar ends <laughs> around this issue, which is, let's face it, about women's bodies,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, so. Yeah. Well,
0: and, you know, it's interesting because it's the, the it is an election season and he, everyone made this big deal about Trump being the first president to ever go to the march to, to, to ever go to the march. change happening maybe presidents will now start doing this maybe people will start doing this for net forever except the fact is it's an election season and of course it's a, of course there's a purpose behind it but many want to i think many want to give the benefit of the doubt and i don't really feel like there's many politicians at all that deserve the benefit of the doubt <laughs> i'm not so sure donald trump deserves the benefit of the doubt As like oh i'm doing this oh for you this for is a great cause yeah <laughs> well yeah. Well, and 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 to to your question about power, I, you know, I I've worked now in three churches full-time. Two of the three churches um the the pastors that I worked underneath um specifically viewed themselves as the, you know, I would say the CEO of the church. Um sort of they the the first church that I worked at, he literally told me um I'm the CEO of this company. He literally used that phrase with me and with a few other people. Uh, The next church, (laughs) that phrase was never used, but the model was so business minded that that was obvious that that was the idea behind what the church was supposed to be. That was the model. And uh, to, you know, I think that, you know, there is this, and and by the way, that second church was the one Josh and I both worked at and uh, every book that we would read together as a staff was always based from this either secular or Christian business leadership model and how to be a better leader and how to do all those kinds of things. And I think it's because we see in the business world that when you look at the way these big businesses are ran and these big, powerful men at the top are running their businesses, you see growth, 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 more money, more money, more money, more money. And I think somehow at some place, somebody most likely I would say definitely a man decided to apply that to the church growth model and decided that that would be the best course of action to see their small tiny church grow uh, I mean you had mentioned in your book because you, you and your husband moved to New York um my, my wife and I have moved numerous times for numerous different churches and we when you were telling that story of you know you walk into church for the first time you arrive in that town for the first time you know I I really felt and understood that from your perspective, because even as a man walking into a church for the first time, you feel vulnerable and you, you feel like you have you have absolutely no power. Uh, the first church I worked for, I was told um, you don't have any authority with any of these people you have no uh, you have no leg to stand on with any of these people you need to get some change in your pocket with all of these people here before anyone will listen to you or have anything or will care about what you have to say and I'm a man and so I can't even begin to imagine within a mostly male dominated field what that's like for a woman to arrive in a small town have to move, have to move her family across the country to go to this new place. Uh, that feeling of vulnerability as a man is not lost on me, so I can't imagine how that is from well, thank, a
2: woman's thank you for saying all that. I really appreciate you resonating with that. I mean, you're referring to this first chapter that mm-hmm. opens the book with my own story of being sexually harassed by my senior pastor,
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
2: and yeah, it is a painful story, and in some ways it was even harder to tell this story than the story I tell in Ruined about being Raped at gunpoint, because that's an extreme story, and nobody can say, "Oh, well, it was your own fault." You know that the stranger right. broke into my house. The story with the senior pastor is more nuanced, and and I knew, I know that people will fault me. They did fault me. They didn't listen to me. They didn't respond when I told them these problems were happening. Yep. I mean, it was just treated as a non-issue. And I, yep. I I'm just thinking about this paragraph that probably resonated with you. I just say, I felt like a hostage. The senior pastor held power over me in every way. He was seasoned in ministry while I was inexperienced. He was financially secure while I was impoverished. Hmm. He was well-connected in the denomination's regional networks while I was unknown. He was established at the church while I was brand new. He was the boss while I was the subordinate. He was male, and I was not. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like that paragraph because it was actually very painful to write it. I kind of, mm-hmm. my editor kind of was challenging me to say, you need to really itemize these ways in which you felt powerless. And, you know, when you do feel powerless, I mean, other powerless people get it. You want to, yeah. mm-hmm. here's another thing for your listeners. You want to learn about power, don't talk to people in power. Talk (laughs) to people who have none because they understand it. This is why it's so important to listen to people of color, to listen to victims of sexual assault, because we are students of power. We know all about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The people who have it are too busy exerting it and hanging on to it to actually understand it. I mean, I suppose they have a different lens on it. Um, Yeah yeah
1: i there wanna uh quickly i wanna um just make a comment about a, a point that you made a little bit earlier because I think it was it was super important um but the the to and then i'll I'll bring back to to where we are but um when you brought up the whole uh thing with the the march for life and trump going there or whatever um I think this ties in again to the idea of power because I mean, if we're honest, abortion has always been or at least more recently or than I guess the past 50, 60 years, whatever, has been a single issue, a shiny red button that the uh, Republican Party has held in front of christians to garner their vote and donald trump is tapping into that power once again and so i think as christians we have to do better to see through those kind of things regardless yeah, yeah. of what you think about abortion you have to do we have to do better to see through those kind of power dynamics well
2: said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah
1: and so um but i think too just um because it's i mean it's so disheartening like the, the story, like you said, with, that had uh, more nuance to it with the, the sexual uh, abuse from the, the head pastor and um, just the whole process that you go through that you shared and, and um, how crazy that was. I can't even imagine, but like it just, it keeps raising this question. Something that I thought about the whole time during reading your book was like, how can we do better? How can we do better um, especially too, because I mean, you talked about uh, overseeing like uh, children and youth ministry. I'm a full time high school and young adult pastor. So constantly when reading your book in the back of my mind, the whole time was like, what am I doing or not doing that is creating a situation where the students entrusted to me are in danger or safety? You know what I mean? Um, so like you talked about this idea of lamenting and i think that's a super helpful thing going forward but like what what can we do better how can we you know break free from the um the illusions of of patriarchy the the false teachings and the the hiding all this kind of
2: stuff what what can we do well you're challenging me as i sit here uh thinking I wonder if I should write a piece that would be specifically geared to youth ministry. Um, I've, my chapter 10, my final chapter in the book, mm. is called The Way Forward, and I yeah. kind of lay out for churches um, and even for denominations and seminaries some of the things that I think we can do better to be more prepared for um, dealing with sexual assault or sexual abuse, which is really always twofold, and that is prevention and response. We have to do both. And I see us starting to do a little bit of prevention with our uh, policies, our child protection policies. Um, There's much more to be done. Um, And where we fall down even worse, I think, is in in response, because that's where the silencing happens. And so to speak to you as someone doing youth ministry, and God bless you for that. I mean, what's more important and more undervalued in society, right? But I think to work with some of these scriptures, to have people have a wider lens on them and understand them in more depth, I think you could have some really interesting conversations. And I would hope you could lift up these very themes we're talking about, which is power, you know, who has power, what are the dynamics of gender? why is it that men are automatically given more power than women and mm-hmm. and how does respect fit into that? What does it mean to respect each other? What, how, how could you teach the concept of consent? Um, um, and what does it mean to have, have a really uh, mutually uh, beneficial relationship between males and females? And uh, you know, this broader lens of sexuality can, uh, you know how do we operate in the world as sexual beings? I mean, I just—I I would hope that you would find fodder for those kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, I, I think—I think one of the things too that, that sticks out to me in my in my last ministry role um, that I'm no longer at—they they—they did this thing after each service each week where they would talk about a current event issue of some type where they would you know whatever had just recently happened. You know, within that last week, you know, those types of things these days. There's, there's plenty of things that are happening these days where you know you can have a conversation about something every week that's brand new. And uh, I remember when, when the, when the situation with Beth Moore. Happened. Um, we had a conversation, and the church I was at was complementarian. Um, and I remember being in the room and listening to some of the people that were speaking, and realizing that many of the people in the room were complementarian because they were told that was the right thing, not because they had spent any of their own time actually thinking about it or any of their own time looking into it and figuring out, wait a minute, is this the right way? How is this how I would like to feel about this? Um, and it was interesting to me to see that the pastor was definitely complementarian but his daughter was not and she was in the room And um, some of the things that were being said back and forth. And I just remember feeling that, you know, the conversation is worth having, I think. And many people forego the conversation because they feel like it's it's too heady, it's too theological. They don't have all the information they need to have the conversation. But I think sometimes just having the conversation helps you get to that place where you can decide. And, you know, I think there's a lot of these things, too. People think, well, whether I'm egalitarian or complementarian, someone will tell me what I should be. And then I'll just simply fall in line. And man, I just, uh, that just, that just bums me out. (laughs) I mean, that's like on the lowest level, it bums me out because there's no reason that we should allow people and people should allow themselves to, to fall in line into where someone asks them to be instead of making their own decision. I mean, I feel that way about voting too. I mean, so many people vote single issue or their husband or their wife tells them which way they ought to vote, and then they just do it. But they don't make a decision for themselves. Uh, or, you know,
2: called it a shiny red button, right? Yeah, that's and right. Absolutely. That's right. Kind of, <laughs> and I yeah. think there's this tendency to be very single issue and then uh, to almost feel virtuous about it. Right. You uh, know? And, and to judge other people who, who would not see it the same way.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
2: And here's just... This could almost be a, my final thought, because okay. it's a challenge. It's to say, it's to say to most of the world out there who are not church going, ask them. Just you know, the uh, person on the street. You know, what do you think a Christian is? And they will tell you probably that the Chris- a Christian is someone who's against different things. Mm-hmm. A, per- a Christian is a person who, who opposes homosexuality. A Christian is a person who opposes abortion. A Christian is a person who opposes the equal rights of women. And, and 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 that's basically what a Christian has become in the in the American imagination. And I think that, you know, this the high prominence now given to the March for Life is just it just buttresses that opinion. <laughs> and you know, to people who are not church going, you know, all of those issues are completely up for debate. Abortion, homosexuality, and the role of uh, equality for women. So think about how that then, you're, you, you know, people who consider themselves good Christians, how they are posturing themselves over yeah. against society as if there are these litmus tests and just these boxes to check. And that not that we follow Jesus who's who the first word on his lips after his resurrection was the word woman mm-hmm. and He was a lover of women he was a champion of women he saw women as human beings and yeah. in that day and age that was crazy talk mm-hmm. so, i mean if we follow this guy why are we comfortable reducing our faith to these these um uh, shiny red buttons as you said
1: yeah amen amen i think yeah. um Real quick, too, I uh, I know you said that, uh, you know, have your final thought and I want to respect your time. But I think maybe one of the most important questions uh, that we could ask you today is for our listeners um, who have been ex- have experienced are victims of sexual abuse and assault. What resources are available? What how can they have a voice, especially for those. Um, who haven't come forward, how can we best empower them and support them to come forward so that justice uh, can happen?
2: Yeah. Well, the first thing to do is to tell somebody who's going to listen to you and who's going to believe you and who's going to companion you. And if the first person you tell about being assaulted doesn't hear you, don't let that stop you. Tell the next person and the next person until you find someone. And if you have to go outside of your church to do that, God bless you, just go outside mm-hmm. your church, find someone who's gonna hear you and walk with you. Because after you've been assaulted or you're being victimized, you are not feeling powerful. And it's very hard to speak up for yourself. You can't be your own advocate. So you need to find an advocate. And you know, you can just email me. I, I hear so many stories. And maybe I can help you find somebody. And then the next thing you have to do is find a good counselor. And don't just go to somebody who's hanging a shingle outside the church wall that says they're a Christian therapist. You need someone who is trauma informed, who will help you uh, understand that being victimized has changed your body and has changed your neurobiology. And you might need um, various kinds of help that are not available just. uh, your run of the mill counselor. So find good counseling. And then the third thing I would say is take good care of your body. We are not, that is not emphasized enough in the Christian tradition. Hmm. We are, we act as if our bodies are, especially women's bodies, are very suspect and they're dirty. And especially when you've been assaulted, you might feel damaged. And you need to push back against that and treat your body uh, as the beautiful thing it is. And so you need to try to get good sleep and good nutrition and good movements and maybe go get yourself a good massage and treat yourself and your body as something precious because the world around you is not going to encourage you to do that. So those are my three pieces of advice, you might say, or my words of encouragement to people who've been a victim. Mm. thank
1: you yeah thank you so much for your time and um man dang it all right so ruth my students make fun of me because i'm a sap and i cry and you're you're our first guest that has (laughs) uh made me emotional so i man um i appreciate uh genuinely um (laughs) man i can't even get through a freaking podcast um i i appreciate genuinely (laughs) Uh, the work that you are doing and the voice that you are giving to the voiceless, and um, yeah. I mean, this is an issue that has no place in our society, but especially no place in our churches. Um, and it's disgusting, it's disheartening, it's frustrating. Um, and so just thank you for for your bravery, for standing up for what's right, and for speaking out. And um, I personally just just wish you the best, and and will continue to to pray for you. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Absolutely. Yeah. Man, yeah. so um, listeners, be sure to, to, to pick up a copy of Ruth's book, The, the Me Too Reckoning. Um, we'll be sure to link it uh, in our show notes. We'll link that. We'll also link uh, her memoir, Ruined. Um, and Ruth, since you mentioned your email, if it's okay with you, I'll go ahead and put that um, in the show notes as well for, sure. for anybody. You can
2: always contact me through my, my
1: website, the contact okay. button there. It's that's easy. Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. We'll be we'll be sure to link that as well. Um, okay. Marty, any any final or closing thoughts?
0: Yeah, just like Josh said, thank you for your bravery, um, but also thank you for realizing that you are an important person. Uh, that God has given you a voice uh, to reach people who need to be reached, um, and thank you for also realizing that you're not second and you're not uh, you're not you're not lesser uh, because of who God made you to be. Um, and uh, thank you for giving that voice to people. And I hope that our listeners, that are women, will hear that and will see that uh, that um, as a woman, you aren't second, you aren't lesser, uh, you are equal, uh, you are the same. Uh, your gift, the gifts that God gives, have been given to you in equal measure than in the ways they have given to me or to Josh or to any other male or any other person for that matter. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so thank you very much for that.
2: Thanks for that, Marty thanks for having me josh and marty it's been it's been it's been powerful i'm glad we had this time together
1: yeah, yeah. thank you so much i know yeah. it's going to be uh, such a blessing um for our listeners and for for anybody um who might stumble upon it uh in a time of need so thank you um man, i'm such a baby <laughs> <laughs> and listeners listeners as well please know too that here at rethinking faith um we stand uh with you and for you. Um and sexual assault and things of those nature, uh patriarchy misogyny, we do not stand for any of those things. Um and neither does Jesus. So uh that's our promise to you guys. And uh as always, uh be sure to uh give us a follow on Instagram if you don't already. And also, uh, just you know in good taste because this is what we always do uh remember the washington capitals are the best hockey team in the world and jesus loves them go caps
0: i'll i'll let i'll let that one stand today in honor of ruth all right (laughs) thank you